the scientists who've reached the Science vs. Spook Show, episode number six. The title of this episode is Spookonomics, Comparisons and Conflicts. Before we get into this topic, you probably saw the news about BET, and I thought, you know, we covered the debt situation of well, Paramount's former name, Viacom. We covered that situation well on the show in terms of either somebody was going to have to chase it and overpay or there could be no deal. This deal may not even be possible because of the debt ratios of uh, Paramount. And so, you know, if you missed that show, you definitely want to go back to episode number four and check it out because it goes to one of the goals of this show is to help in terms of me doing my best to get the inside information to the outside, to take the insider information and what's going on. Hey, the world's going fast. Technology is going fast. You know, our problems and our personal lives are going fast. I don't have time to see what's reliable and what's not. But the purpose of this show in terms of all the, you know, trash that's out there or biased information, our conflicted information that's out there is to give you a more of a scientific perspective of things that are developing or that are likely to develop in the future. And of course, if you listen to episode number four, you would not have been shocked in terms of that outcome and the risk in that BET deal. So let's dive right in here. So I was talking to a venture capitalist and I was telling this venture capitalist that they had to be careful in terms of how they were thinking about conflict of interest, self-dealing, and related party transactions. So, you know, I saw something in the media where the venture capitalist was telling a reporter that, you know, it was okay for the venture capitalist to invest in a side business that they own with the investor money. And the journalist, right, was writing exact and questioning the venture capitalist. And the venture capitalist says, hey, you know, this high profile person and this venture capitalist, they invested in their own company. So, you know, I should be able to do it. You know, it sounded very immature, but there's some bigger problems with this type of thinking, right? And this involves a conflict of interest. But what I told the venture capitalist was, you know, they were talking about all this, you know, Jay-Z and this person, this person, this person. First off, you're not on that level. Okay. So when we're making comparisons, right, we need to see where we're at. You know, we can't, the midget can't be comparing themselves to a giant and expecting giant results. For example, if they get into a fight, right? So the venture capitalists seem like they were spooky and thinking that they're going to be able to do what these other people are doing. So the, what I told the venture capitalists, I said, Hey, Jay-Z stabbed Luntz on Rivera. You know, he stabbed a man. Allegedly. Some people say, you know, maybe he didn't, but essentially he pled guilty to a stabbing, you know, he got away with it. If you follow the celebrities or the leaders, right? Like, oh, they, they get away with stuff. That means I should be able to get away with it. That's the 
that's a really, of course, stating the obvious, that's a really flawed ethical orientation where, you know, you see people doing questionable things, right? They may be operating in a gray area or they may be committing crime and you see them getting away with it. You want to get away with it or you use them to justify what you're doing. But what I told the venture capitalist was instead of looking at what these people are doing out here and, you know, they're possibly stepping over their investors or not disclosing conflicts of interest, related party transactions, instead of looking at what everybody else is doing, you need to be looking at whether what you're doing is right, what you're doing is ethical and what you're doing is legal. Okay. The Securities and Exchange Commission, the securities laws in the United States, right? The more you see conflict of interest are conflict of interest risks, self-dealing risks, related party transactions risks. I'm making deals with myself and doing using resources for my own stuff, right? From the investors. It, as that elevates the disclosures of the conflict of interest, the related party transactions, the the self-dealing, as the uh, potential for conflict of interest increases, a really ethical venture capitalist is going to disclose more to their investors, the, the people who believed in them, right? So, hey, there's nothing funny going on. You know, this is going on. You know, I need to disclose this. It's not that you need to disclose it based on the law, although you do in many cases, you do need to disclose it, you know, but it's the right thing to do. You don't do it just because the government says you have to do it. You should do it because it's the right thing to do. These are the people who invested in you. So if, if there's something that could be could look funny that you're doing with yourself, right, you want to disclose that. You want to make sure that people don't think you have something to hide, right? You're hiding stuff. So I got to thinking about conflict of interest and, you know, a little bit about my background. So I, I dropped out of law school at Syracuse University College of Law. And I worked as a paralegal. And I worked on a famous case. You know, I was living in Harlem at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I get this paralegal job at this big firm. And there's like 100 paralegals on the floor. And I'm like, what is this? So this case that I was working on was actually the famous Solomon Smith Barney Citigroup Jack Grubman case. So he was a famous uh, analyst. And so what happened in that case is, you know, the chairman of Citigroup, Sandy Weil, he says, hey, you know, we on this side of the investment banking, we need you to hook up one of our clients, uh, AT&T. But the analyst is supposed to be objective right? The people are relying on that research, whether to buy or sell securities. So there's ideally you want there to be a Chinese wall where I'm trying to get this business over here, but my research, you know, needs to be objective, right? I can't mix the two conflict of interest. Bad stuff is going to happen and investors are going to get hurt. So Citigroup, Sandy Weil, he tells Jack, Jack Grubman, hey, why don't you take another look at that AT&T stock? 
So he changes the stock rating and he says, I'm going to hook up your child at some, you know, elite, uh, you know, school in exchange for you hooking me up so we can get this investment banking business. I want you to change your research. So this changed the industry. Okay. In terms of conflicts of interest. So they were busted. And my job as a paralegal was just to go through the emails. And so, you know, I'm reading these emails and I think that was part of my spooking of business in corporate America, where I'm going into these emails all day. I'm working like 14, 15 hours a day, getting the overtime, but going into the emails of this particular Jack Grubman, Solomon Smith, Barney Citigroup situation, it gave me, I believe, a unique insight in terms of how these people play. You know, these people are close to psychopathic, are psychopathic where they just laugh. You know, we're getting over on this person. You know, we played the CEO of uh, AT&T like a fiddle. It's like a plaything in terms of stepping over people, getting over people, lying to people. They're just laughing about it. And the thing is, Sandy Weil and Citigroup, he never did any jail time. And so with this conflict of interest situation, of course, the securities laws were changed after this. When this became public, right? So on the inside, they're transacting business in a unethical and illegal manner, but the information is going to come out over time, right? So once the information comes out and people better understand how these people are doing business, then you have a change in the securities laws in the United States. It becomes public of how these people are getting down on the inside. And that's why with conflicts of interest, because of the history the person selling the securities, right? They have to be extra careful in notifying investors, keeping investors updated on the details. Don't just tell the investor the headline story and this and this and that. This was this this company was in a magazine and this. I'm not interested in any of that. Tell me about the details and your fiduciary duty to report. Any self-dealings, conflict of interest, related party transactions, why you're putting your valuation marks as high as you are. Don't give me the spook. Give me the science. Give me the details. So with this, working on this Jack Grubman case at Paul Weiss in New York, the law firm, you know, it could have played a part in me identifying a problem between SBF, the big crypto billionaire uh, who was busted in handcuffed, of me figuring out that there was something wrong with this situation before everybody else. Okay. So the situation was Sam Trabuco, who was a famous crypto trader at a time, they owned a trading firm called Alameda. And they own a trading firm. And they own the brokerage. Okay. So there you go, Jack Grubman, again. So if you're trading and trying to make profit and you own the brokerage as well, right? There's a lot of information that's going between these two entities. There's a lot of high risk for insider trading, insider information. So I saw that there was something funny with that situation. As soon as I understood that these people have a 
big influential. They're moving the market. This is a, a trading firm that can move the market. They want something to go up. They have enough muscle and capital to move and manipulate the market. So they're trading and they're the broker. So, so Moldum published a story and had my quote in there. Uh, I commissioned the story. And so the, uh, the chief counsel of FTX and Alameda, Dan Freiberg, who was also arrested, he emailed me uh, and he's like, Mr. Martin, you know, I want to talk, you know, there's some, it's not really accurate. You got to really kind of pay close attention to how people speak. It's not really accurate what you were saying. I want to talk to you about how this industry works. So the guy who eventually was arrested, he wants to talk to me, right, about the industry. I don't need to talk to you, Mr. Freiberg, about the industry. I just need to zero in on the conflict of interest. And that's going to point me to more information, more questions. Like, you know, you're, there's no type of spook and this and this and that. You're not going to give me all this information. I'm going to zero in on the potential conflicts, right? And of course, the conflict of interest, it doesn't necessarily mean somebody is right and dirty. However, there's a high risk that this is, there's something else going on here. Uh, if these people are flagrantly, you know, transacting business within a conflict of interest environment, uh, you know, this is likely to go bad. And of course, you saw that, you know, these people are on the cover of Fortune and Forbes and everybody else is spooked out. And oh, my gosh, this guy is like the next crypto messiah. And, you know, this, the venture capitalists were even spooked out They're They're like, hey, just give them the money. Just give them more money. You know, he's the one. You know, oh my gosh. And the world becomes spooked out over SBF, Sam Bankman Fry. So, this fraudulent operation with Alameda, Sam Trabuco, right? Everybody is following them and everybody's listening to them on Twitter and they're the new prophets. I'm not, I'm not paying attention to any of that. I'm paying attention to the science of it all. Let's talk about the conflicts and how you guys have a trading firm and you guys have a brokerage firm. So, you know, with, with conflict of interest, of course, it could be predictive of shady or criminal activity. Somebody is getting over and they're operating in very murky, questionable waters. And so... Let's stay on venture capital here. And so particularly spookonomics. Um, so there's a venture capitalist. This, this is, I believe, a good one. You know, a good venture capitalist is somebody who's going to tell you the good and the bad. And this is just kind of good. A good person to follow is going to be somebody who's deep in the guts on the inside of something. It could be politics. It could be business. It could be a certain industry. It could be education, but they're deep on in the guts of the situation. They're not like an outsider. They really know what's going on for real, for real. So if they're deep on the inside, they tell you the good and the bad. Okay. So a bad person or somebody who can't really help us, somebody who can't really help us is they go on the inside, but they don't tell you 
the pluses and the minuses, the W's and the L's. And, you know, let me give you an example. Many questions what I had about Barack Obama was he went into the inside of Rome like no other person, right? He goes, well, no other person, like no other person who looks like him, okay? He, he goes on the inside in terms of how everything works, and he doesn't share any new information to his most loyal supporters, the black American Democrats. So you go into the system and there's all this corruption and there's all this, you know, backroom dealing and this and that. But he, although the people invested in him, right, he's not telling you any new secrets, any new insider information to help the black American develop a better political strategy. He goes into it and he's like, just vote, you know? So right there, if somebody is going in and you're an insider, you have insider information like none of us out here. You, you see who everybody is really up close, but you don't come out of that situation and give the, your most loyal supporters any game, any new insider information. So you can't be helpful to me, right? Because if you're not sharing the information, something most likely you're conflicted, right? There's other, there's other points to that, but you know, somebody like this, who of course, Jeff Bezos gave Obama a hundred million dollars, the Obama foundation. And, you know, you'll see pictures of Michelle Obama kissing Jeff Bezos and you'll see Obama, you know, Reportedly, he was friends with Mark Zuckerberg, was very close to the people at the top of uh, Google. Now, Alphabet, Eric Schmidt, the chairman, was close with Obama. But if the new rulers in the United States coming out of Silicon Valley in the technology industry, they have the biggest wallet, right? If you're now conflicted with this cabal of power out of California, I can't listen to you or I got to discount a lot of things what you say. Let's just say your tongue is tied, right? So Obama's friends are the ones partially running the country, right? They got the money. They got the donation money. They got the power. They got the relationships. And Obama most likely is thinking about, hey, this is what I need when I get out of office. I need some stuff when I get out of office. And I got the billionaire friends out of Silicon Valley. And when you see conflicts of interest where Obama's White House secretary, James Carney, he's the top lobbyist at Amazon. So Jeff Bezos, he didn't just get where he's at based on business and money. He got where he's at based on neutralizing political opposition, compromising the American political system by recruiting people like the Obama Democrats, James Carney, Obama, and you know, you saw uh, that he donated to Van Jones. Where for somebody to be at that level, right? You uh, not just business game. You need good political game, where you're strategically planning uh, an influence game. I'm going to buy the Washington Post. I'm going to make Obama my agent. I'm going to uh, hire the Obama White House person uh, as my top lobbyist. Uh, I'm going to do whatever it takes 
so I can buy some protection and neutralize some or the majority of my opposition. The public is going to think these people are fighting me, but they, they're not going to know that, man, this is a whole nother game behind the scenes, right? The public is going to be spooky and thinking that this person is trying to change everything, but there's a whole nother game behind the scenes. And this game involves conflict of interest. And so, of course, the, the big takeaway with the conflicts is uh, you when somebody is conflicted, you start to discount what they say about that particular issue. I don't want to listen to the Chevron exec or the Shell oil exec about the environment. You know, hey, this person has good speeches. This person talks well. You know, this looks good. This I don't want to listen to that about that subject because the person is too conflicted. And so while we're on the subject of Obama, you also see this, not just, of course, with business and politics. You see this with politics and politics because the Obama administration recruited Al Sharpton when there was growing accountability questions. There were growing questions in Black America about what Barack Obama is delivering for the people who went million men march on him to get him into office. What is he doing materially for the people who put him there? And so there were rising questions, but what the powerful people are going to do is they're going to buy conflicts of interest. Okay. So they are going to recruit somebody like Al Sharpton to help neutralize the criticism that's out there. Right. So Al Sharpton is now on the, he's on the, the radio waves and he's, you know, going across the country defending Obama. He's telling everybody that, hey, he can't be the president for black America. That's not fair. He's the president of all America. So what the Obama advisors said about recruiting Sharpton, they said that they were surprised. They said that they were surprised that he was so easy to work with. Okay, they, they use different language, but they pretty much said that they were surprised Al Sharpton, who was, for example, he was one of the few leaders who would support Dr. Khalid Muhammad at the uh, Million Youth March in Harlem. But he was known as attacking the inside, but they, like Bezos, right? And Obama are Bezos and Van Jones are Bezos and James Carney. Obama and his advisors, they smartly bring Sharpton on the inside. Right. And then the criticism is you, it's not just Sharpton. They have a whole strategy. Right. It's, but he's part of that strategy. And you see the criticism. People are just OK, OK, OK. So the criticism, it peaks around the time that Sharpton is brought into the White House. So now he gets to, you know, further legitimize his credibility by being associated with the president of the United States. He gets the pictures in front of the White House. So in the public eye, in the spook eye, Al Sharpton maintains his credibility. It's hard for a leader to stay relevant. But if I got the U.S. government backing me, I got the cool president backing me, it further legitimizes my leadership. But the thing is, if Al Sharpton... And this is one of the things that many black nationalists, black 
conscious people missed is that if Barack Obama is the president of the United States, right? The His identity and how much you like him, that doesn't change that that's the U.S. government. Okay, so if Barack Obama is the U.S. government, the same government of a J. Edgar Hoover, right? This is the same government of Jim Crow. If Barack Obama is the U.S. government and he has the, they have recruited Al Sharpton onto their team as part of a neutralization-like strategy. Hey, I want to deflect criticism. I want to undermine the criticism. Then the government is on both sides, Okay, like Bezos is on both sides. I got people on the inside the government. Some people you may know, some people you don't know. I got these relationships and I got the outside business. So with our Sharpton situation, it's a conflict of interest because if the Democratic Party and the Congressional Black Caucus, you're helping, for example, Comcast by NBC NBC Universal and they hook you up with a TV station. And now... When you start serving Barack Obama or the government and you start carrying out their orders and doing what they want them want you to do, right? How can you still be considered a black leader? Because we're going to need checks and balances to navigate these conflicts of interest. You're, you're so conflicted where your money is coming from the government, your credibility is coming from the government. Then who is actually going to bang against the government on behalf of black Americans if you're on the government side? So the government is going to have a supernatural advantage by acquiring conflict of interest with the black leadership. Because if I get to be around Biden, I get to be at the White House, I get TV shows and I get pressure on the TV and media companies to work with me then I'm getting some type of financial benefit and I can't, I can't speak truth. I can't go against the, the systems and the government in an independent way. Okay. So conflict of interest is, you know, a critical factor in understanding what's really going on. And, you know, whether it's politics or business is something to, uh, of course, really uh, pay attention to. So going back to uh, Spookonomics, Bill Gurley, he says this uh, about the venture capital industry. I went and talked to some LPs who have been in the business for a very long period of time. And the vast majority of the reason venture outperforms other asset classes has to do with these tiny windows where you have a super frothy market if you strip those years out of a 40-year assessment, it's actually not that interesting of an asset class. This highlights the need for venture funds to get liquidity at the peak. Right when we're at the peak is when people get the most brazen and confident and start talking about how we're going to hold forever. You had venture firms with the biggest positions they ever had in their entire life go over the waterfall and evaporate what could have been returns. So Bill Gurley, you know, he's telling you what's going on on the inside. And I would pay attention to people who, who have that character in this respect, where they're going to tell you what the insiders are really saying. And, and I'm going to translate this is what he's saying is, look, 
people, everybody, oh, we need more venture capitalists. We need this and that. He's telling you that this stuff without a bubble, like a, a Ponzi scheme, you know, look up the history uh, of Charles Ponzi and what is a Ponzi scheme in terms of, you know, people promising really high returns. But the key to a Ponzi scheme or Ponzi-nomics is you need a sucker who buys into it and they keep on buying higher and higher. Uh, what he's saying here is that for venture capital to work, you really need some type of mania, some type of spook bubble where people start going crazy. And then you not only need that condition, is you need to be able to get out of the Ponzi before it collapses. A Ponzi is going to collapse when more information goes to the service and people realize that this stuff, like the crypto uh, bubble, uh, when prices were flying and of course it deflated, but you need more and more people thinking that they're going to get rich quick. But the, but the smart Ponzi operator just has to, you, when the bubble is there, you need to, you need to get liquid. You need to cash out before the game is up. And he's telling you this, the, the venture capital industry that this stuff doesn't even work. It's not even like a, a rational market of, you know, Hey, I'm investing in good businesses and I make money uh, when these when these businesses become, you know, much bigger businesses or billion dollar businesses, there's something else going on here. It's not just, hey, you invest in great founders and you invest in great businesses. These businesses become successful and I get paid. He's telling you that there's something else. There's a whole, you need a Ponzi layer. You need some type of Ponzi scheme element where people keep buying this stuff in a mania and then you need to cash out before the house of cards falls down. Of course, my framing is a bit more aggressive than what he's saying, but you know, this is pretty much what he's saying. And so how would you frame what is spookonomics where, you know, over the last, you know, 15 years uh, with the run up out of uh, Silicon Valley, you have people Hey, I want to be this. I want to be that. I want to be the billionaire. I want to be the big Zuckerberg. But spookonomics gets into if everybody is chasing spookonomics where my lottery ticket is going to hit, right? I'm going to be one of the, you know, million that hits the, the VC lottery or the entrepreneur lottery is that you know, it could really, if we don't really know the math in terms of the math of failure, the math of gain in terms of, hey, what are the entrepreneurs that do make it, right? The ones where the lottery ticket hit, how much do they really get paid in, you know, the spook elements within the venture capital industry where all these people are, you know, stressing their families and marriages and their life, and they're chasing this dream, this dream, this lottery ticket dream, where only a few make it, right? But the thing is, the few that make it, what are they really getting? Let's say you're lucky enough to be a unicorn, and you build a substantial company with Silicon Valley uh, investment. I'm going to go to a quote by Bryce Roberts of Venture Capitalist. And here, he's what I call despooking, 
Despooking is when there's a superficial reading of something, a superficial understanding, but you start to go into the factors, the facts, and the numbers, like what's really going on underneath something. And so he's given up some serious game here where he says the data, he's talking about a study, he says the data suggests startups generally have two to three founders. So divide that number by the number of founders. And that's a predictable founder ownership level of a Series D funded company in the capture post. The Series D valuation was $210 million. You can't, of course, see it. But in venture capital, they have different rounds of funding. A seed, Series A, Series B, Series C, Series D. And so he's saying that the valuation is around... Average valuation of Series D was about two hundred and ten million, and so he wrote this in about two thousand sixteen, or he wrote it in two thousand sixteen. Reframing those numbers another way, a founder selling at the Series D price of two hundred and ten million, he sells a startup at two hundred ten million, would make the same amount of money at exit as they would have if they sold for thirty eight million after having only raised a seed round. Lifetimes of work and risk lie between a seed round and a series D round. And despite increasing the value of the underlying business seven times the dollars at exit for the founder remain roughly the same. It is also worth noting that an exit at 210 million would not even qualify as a home run for even the smallest fund in Sam's examples. There are many paths to managing dilution, but be it raising fewer rounds at higher and higher valuations or raising one round and scaling a business on revenue and profits generated from customers. So in this despooking, he's saying that, hey, if you would have sold your business when it was worth 38 million with less investors in your, your cap table, less investors owning your company, you're trying to be a big company, you're trying to be a big company. That's good. It looks good for the press. And oh, it's a big company. But what he's saying is that the when you despook and you go down to the real numbers, that there are a lot of situations where you were better off selling your company when it was much smaller than selling your company when it was valued at $210 million because all these investors are coming in the pot, right? It's leaving the the founders with with little. Okay. So you know, we have to look at, in terms of the, the world, the number one industry in the world is spook. Okay, if I can go make some shoes in Vietnam and, you know, put some celebrities on it and have a good marketing campaign, if I can make that product for $25 and sell it to you for $2,500, the gap between the cost and, you know, it, it, it's, it's most likely it, the, the gap between what the person will pay and the small amount it takes to make it. For me to sell that thing that costs $25 for $2,500, I'm going to need a lot of spook where in, this, in the person's head, they believe those shoes, they believe that car, they believe, you know, this celebrity brand, they believe in something that kind of, you know, it's, hey, I think it's valuable. And so to de-spook 
to deflate some of these misunderstandings that are out there are false valuations out there. The only way to do that is actually to, to go to the actual numbers of what's really going on on the inside. I can't really speak intelligently about anything if I'm speaking at it just on a superficial level, but many people, you know, they're talking about things on the superficial level. And that's where what I would call the 10 percenters are the people who are cheating, stealing, selling a whole bunch of spook. They're going to exploit and profit the most when people just have this belief thing. I believe that's valuable. I'm not looking underneath anything. Uh, I just see how this politician looks. This person's black and this person represents this or this person talks a good way but I'm not going to be looking under into the details about what I'm really getting. So the spook sellers, right, are going to make more money the more spook there is. And so I'm always going to pay attention when somebody is breaking things down to the actual numbers, uh, right? It may look like these people are making all this money with these big companies, but after, you know, 25 investors have invested, that company could have been $38 million in that person could make out better. Um, and so I want to move on to false comparisons and give you an example of one. So Dr. Khalid Muhammad, you know, he was having issues with his organization. He had a speech. This speech, the name of it was At the Crossroads. And I'm going to play a clip. Some say, stronger than that, why don't you just shut up? Shut your big mouth. Go sit down some damn way. Just get quiet. Some say, let's evaluate it, because at the close of this e evening with this family town meeting, I'm going to ask you what you feel. Some say Malcolm never had a chance. To be quiet. Some say Malcolm never had a chance to reflect, to just go in within himself and pray and meditate. Some say that if Malcolm would have had that opportunity that he might be alive today. Many say much. Some say go to an island somewhere withdraw six months to a year let the honorable minister lewis farrakhan know before you go that you're just going into prayer and fasting and meditation and that you'll be making no public appearances that since he did not silence you that you've got enough sense to silence yourself can't you see you are interfering with his work can't you see that you are undermining Minister Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam. Some say, start your own organization. I'll be with you. I got your back. I say the hell you do. You're a leader within your own life. But what you must understand 
is that Malcolm was ever never able to really build a strong organizational base after he left the nation of Islam. He started the Muslim mosque incorporated in the Teresa Hotel, but it never really got up off the ground. He moved from the Teresa Hotel, from the Muslim Mosque Incorporated, to set up the OAAU, the Organization of African American Unity, but it never really got up off the ground. Why? Because Malcolm was half here and half there. Malcolm was half into trying as he had reached the crossroads in his life. He had now come to the conclusion that he must make a decision. Okay, so you heard him compare his situation to Malcolm X. And, you know, he made a mistake. Well, he, he's talking to the audience and he, and he says, you know, what you don't understand, what the audience doesn't understand is Malcolm was never able to get something going. Okay. And if we're like, oh, Dr. Khalid is, is the, you know, the best hero, right? And he was in terms of, he is a hero today, right? In terms of the work he put in. But if we are up in the clouds in terms of who he was, we're not going to be able to learn from him, the good and the bad. We can't just take the, the positive. But in this situation, he was wrong when he said that Malcolm, you know, he wasn't confident in terms of going out on his own. And I think he was right to have some reservations about going out on his own. But the point of this uh, episode is, of course, to to talk about bad comparisons. So. He says that Malcolm never really got anything going. And he thinks that's relevant to him. You know, he's so, in his mind, it's everything Malcolm and my situation are similar. But it's a, it was a really bad comparison here by the doctor uh, because if you look into the detail, Malcolm, in terms of when he actually had a functional organization or organizations, that's less than 12 months. That's less than 12 months. So we can't make a comparison of someone getting something going within a 12-month time frame. Because if you would take Malcolm's teacher, Elijah Muhammad, who was on the run for seven years, and, and there are points where he had to start over. Things got so bad he had to start over. So if you take a snapshot and just say that is what it is, and it's like 12 months, then that's a dirty comparison. There's a clean comparison where you do your best to make it apples and apples and you know you make the adjustments necessary to make it closer to a fair comparison. But there's a dirty comparison too where the comparison is not fair. So you couldn't say anything about Malcolm's ability to organize if you only give him 12 months and there's all this crazy stuff going on. If somebody's trying to kill me in the government and you know there's there's people I used to work with they're they're trying to kill me, right? And I'm on the run. Right? And I'm and I got two different organizations. 
I can't just take a year, your first year of organizational activity and have any intelligent thing to say, because that's not enough time. And a lot of things of significance is going to take at least 10 years of really hardcore significance in terms of things that are remembered in history. And so, you know, you can't just look at Malcolm's uh, less than 12 months of organizing outside of his former organization. Right. You can't just look at that and say he never got anything going. I mean, the stuff that he got going within the nation, that took time. You know, he got stuff popping as soon as he got out of jail, for sure. But that buildup took time. Uh, and so we can learn a lot about identifying dirty comparisons where someone and, you know, someone could say, hey, look, East Indians come over here and do this. Our Nigerians come over here to the United States and the Jamaicans come over here and do this. And they will compare the model minority to the black American, the former slave in the United States. And they will compare to the whole population. Right. And so that in that dirty comparison, right, they are sending their number one draft picks over here. People who make in a lot of cases, they're well off, they're connected, and that's how they get over here. So you're sending the best and you're comparing to the whole population of Black America. So that's that would be a dirty comparison where you're not really considering important factors that are underneath that. And so, you know, another thing I want to say is, while I was thinking about this, you know, something in the 90s, uh, you know, I used to hear a lot is Malcolm wasn't Malcolm X. He wasn't anything before Elijah Muhammad. And, you know, on the surface, on the surface, that sounds right, right? He's a pimp, right? He's a hoodlum. He's a low life. Uh, he was all of that, you know? So he wasn't anything before he got the lessons and a knowledge of self. However, you know, when I really thought about it, is this, of course, that's what I heard. That was a popular statement, you know, in the 90s, is that Malcolm was nothing. He was nothing, you know, before Elijah Muhammad and a knowledge of self. But when I really thought about it, and this is this, you know, we can't take anything face value. We need to investigate it on ourselves. It doesn't matter who it is. So when I really thought about it, okay. Malcolm, a chapter in his book, it was called The Mascot. And Malcolm was ambitious as a child. You know, Malcolm's father was in the Garvey movement. Malcolm's mother was a seven-day Adventist. And at least from the state's perspective, she was mentally imbalanced. And you know what they say about a lot of gifted people are geniuses is that they got some crazy in them. They got some crazy in their genetics. And the the position of some was Malcolm had mental illness in his family. And you even saw some of these statements after the death where other family members had mental issues. But the thing is, if you really look into the details of it, is that Malcolm, he was gifted. He had extraordinary uh, traits 
before a knowledge of self, before Elijah Muhammad. And so what would support what I'm saying? Because this is a popular narrative that Malcolm was nothing before a knowledge of self. So Malcolm led the charge of setting up about 40 or 50 mosques. Okay. He was really about it. He was working crazy hours, but he was gifted. Okay. So if you have a thousand soldiers and they struggle with one temple, but Malcolm ago puts up 40 or 50, right? There's a spread between what the bigger number is doing and what he's doing. Why is he able to do all this stuff? But a thousand other people, they're not doing it or they can't do it. So that when the, when you see a spread between what the average person is doing with the same exact teaching, the same exact lessons, they're not doing anything close to what this man is doing. Okay. So the spread, they both have the same leader, the same teaching, but why is Malcolm doing all this? And everybody else is down here. Okay. Not that Malcolm did all this by himself, but in terms of the work, the leadership in the institutional building, there's a big spread between what Malcolm was doing and what maybe 500, 1,000, 2,000 people were doing at different times. So if Malcolm, if the lessons and the knowledge itself was doing all the work, right? We should see more Malcolm X's because you have the same teaching, you have the same leader, uh, you have the same lessons, but you can't replicate that, right? You can't, we should have more Malcolms then. So my point is that Malcolm was bringing a whole lot to the table. He was bringing a whole lot of alpha and he was a genius before he even got to a knowledge of self. And so, you know, if I'm a religious person, I want to protect my religion, my faith, my equilibrium and balance comes from my religion. So naturally I'm going to protect that, what I, my existing belief. So I'm highly biased because I'm actually protecting, right, my, my balance, my understanding, my equilibrium. But if I'm a scientist, I'm going to call the game as I see it. I'm going to look at the facts and the reality and, and call it. And when I call the game as a scientist, right, the team that the call goes against, or it could be both teams at different times, they don't like the call, so they're angry, right? The referee, his job is to look at the facts, the reality, and the rules and just call it in an unbiased way, just call it as it is. And so when I look at, you know, this Malcolm X situation, that this guy, this leader, he was bringing a lot to the table, okay? And that you have to give him credit that he had unique things going on with him before he gets out of prison. So the, the, the lessons and the knowledge itself, of course, it puts a battery pack on him and it puts a battery pack on others as well. But this particular situation, if, if the lessons and the knowledge itself connects with a super gifted person, it's going to do so much more. And it's going to explain the spread between 
Malcolm setting up 40 or 50 and maybe a thousand people struggling with setting up one temple. And we got to get down to the details and the math to figure some assumptions are flawed or some understandings are flawed. One concept I want to quickly go over is risk-adjusted return. And this is right within comparisons. So a risk-adjusted return, right, is, hey, you know, for me to compare these two investments, these two potential investments, or these two options, I can't just look at, hey, this investment over here, I'm likely to get a 40% return. And this investment over here, I'm likely to get a 15% return. So, however, with the higher potential gain, I need to know how much risk am I taking? Because if I go after the higher percentage, the risk on that is through the roof. Okay, so I can lose all my money if I go after the higher percentage. So for me to compare these two things, I need to make adjustments. I need to account for the risk. And so when I account for the risk of the two options, it makes more sense to go after this option over here that's a lower uh, investment return or lower likely return. This is the better option because... Why would I be taking all this risk for that for that return and I can essentially lose everything? So risk the concept, I want you to look it up. The concept of risk adjusted return gets into when we're making comparisons of two different things or three things, we need to make adjustments to think about the options clearly, more efficiently. So you know, this is going to conclude the episode. Peace. Keep it scientific.